Welcome to Out on a Limb, where traditional finance and the new digital economy converge with a sense of history. My name is Tim Enneking, and this is episode 36. Today is Tuesday, May 16th, and we're doing a little bit earlier today. It's about noon on the left coast of the United States. Three topics today, one fairly traditional and two rather unique, and particularly the, the second topic for today. First is simply inflation. Inflation does seem to be cooling. The positive numbers are that uh, the CPI was 0.4% uh, on a monthly basis, but you can multiply by 12 just as well as I can. 4.8% is down. Uh, there's a little bit of compounding in there, but nothing to worry about. But it's really not a, a great number, and that's caused some consternation among some folks. The PPI, so the producer price index versus the consumer price index, however, was only up 2.3%, which is really spectacular news. It's the lowest in two years. Uh, that's an annual figure, obviously. Maybe a bit of a, an aberration going down so much, but nevertheless, even if it rebounds uh, a bit next month or in the coming months, uh, the PPI is generally a precursor to the CPI for obvious reasons. Things have to be produced before they can be consumed. Uh, the other aspect of inflation, which is really important now, is the jobless rate. Now, jobless claims increased to 264K uh, last month. That's not a huge increase, uh, but because they've been so low, it's the highest in about a year and a half the, uh, uh, since October 2021. There is a real anomaly in that number, and my, my penchant is to dig under the numbers at least a little bit. Uh, I often go past, I don't always go past the headlines into some of the details, but here I actually dug into some of the details even more deeply. Over 50% of the increase in jobless claims was due to one state, which almost never happens, and I don't think it's ever happened where that one state was Massachusetts. So there's something odd that happened in the job market in Massachusetts, which makes the jobless claim increase even a bit more puzzling. But nevertheless, inflation, uh, sorry, the unemployment re remained at 3.5%, which is just insanely low. Uh, the th it was 3.4 and I think actually 3.3 .3 in 1968 and 9, just crazy long time ago, right? So over half a century ago. So effectively in modern conditions or contemporary conditions, it's a record unemployment rate. We're still staying there. So um, the stagflation fears, that is stagnation in terms of the economy, so high unemployment rate and high inflation, uh, the, the worst of both worlds, uh, is certainly not a near-term threat. You don't hear about, you haven't heard about that so much this week. These things change so so uh, so rapidly as people's fears come to the fore. In the meantime, all markets, crypto markets, fiat markets, debt markets, equity markets are just really uncertain as to what to do. Uh, the change to that, the one caveat to that, and it's an ever-growing one, are concerns about the debt ceiling being limited. Janet Yellen has been emphasizing June 1st as a date, and has talked about that's increasing U.S. borrowing costs already for short-term uh, short T-bills. 
so with, with exception of that, which is having a distortion that I hope will be only temporary in nature, everyone else is just waiting for a direction. Strangely, given the concerns for the debt ceiling, uh, crypto markets, Bitcoin in particular, are not really moving up. In fact, today it's been even stranger because Bitcoin is not moving up, but most of the crypto sector is. So, um, and normally you'd expect chaos in the fiat world to contribute to gains in the crypto world. I think that happened earlier this year for a while. I'm sure it did actually, but uh, you would expect it to happen now. And it's not happening, which is a, is a bit strange. It's only for a couple of days, so we'll see what happens. But overall, the world is still waiting to see if inflation is going to come down and what it's going to take. The second topic, which I, I found just fascinating doing some research on for my own edification, and as I went into it, I decided it's a really good topic for the podcast, is the banking system in the United States. Uh, the three topics, one is a definitional one, which is what is fractional reserve banking, which is what we generally have in the United States and in most countries, uh, discuss a little bit about narrow banking, and then talk about the number of banks in the United States. So fractional reserve banking, what is that? Reserve banking, let's talk about complete reserve banking, which is also called narrow banking, means that a bank has debits, that is, it borrows money from its depositors. And it's sort of interesting. Most people, when they make deposits, don't think of it as lending money to the bank. But that's exactly what we are doing when we have our paychecks or whatever deposited with the bank. We're lending the bank money. And sometimes, you know, you hear about banks sweeping money and overnight deposit rates and, you know, having cash on hand and earning from the float. But all of that boils down to lending a bank money or any other business that you are parking uh, money with. You're lending them money because on their balance sheet, they have a debit. They received $100. They have $100 to do whatever with. That will probably be a credit on their balance sheet. And the debit is that they owe you the depositor $100. Now, in fractional reserve banking, if I, the, the key word is reserve. How much does a bank hold in reserve? So if a bank has $100 billion in deposits, how much at any given time is in reserve? Now, federal requirements, depending on the size of the bank and some other things, have a requirement of between or around 8 to 10% of those reserves. And at times in in our nation's history, in the history of other countries, that reserve level has been exceedingly low. In some OECD member countries, historically, it was as low as 2%. So with $100 billion, if you have more than 2% of the, of the amount claimed by depositors who want their money back, they're going to have to wait. You can't pay it all out. It's gone up progressively over time, particularly after 08, 09. I think it was like 5 to 6% then, going up to 8 to 10 may not sound uh, like a lot, but it was almost uh, double. And what that means is the money is just sitting on the bank's, uh, on the bank's balance. Uh, it has to be vir virtually immediately accessible, so you can't even do a lot with it. So the bank isn't making money on that, on those funds. It's what I call in wearing my CIO, my chief investment officer hat, dead money. And so the higher that amount, the harder the other money has to work for the bank to do just as well. And therein lies a bit of a problem. So the, the banks want to put that, let's call 90% of its balance sheet to work. 
and it'll put some of it to work aggressively and some of it to work, most of it to work conservatively, at least conservatively at a, at a given point in time. So let's say a bank took 90% of that 90 billion, so $81 million, and put it in uh, US debt, government debt, in T-bills. That is approved by the, the federal authorities in the United States. The equivalent moves buying gilts or, or buying something equivalent uh, in, a, in a European country or any other country is approved by the banking regulators of that country. They can hardly disapprove it because the banks are lending money to the, to the uh, country itself. And so they become the lenders to the federal government or to the central government. And that all sounds very good, except when you have something like the uh, rapid interest, interest rate increases you've had virtually all around the world. Because when you mark those, debt, those debts, those loans to market, the value plunges. And since the interest rate has skyrocketed, the value of those balance sheet assets has dropped accordingly. And that's in a only slightly simplified version why uh, Silicon Valley Bank, why Signature Bank, why First Republic Bank all went down. E in each case, there were some other nuances, generally that they were focused on a fair fairly narrow sector. And when a bank run starts in a narrow sector, it spreads very rapidly. If you have a diversified a client base, a diversified lender base, right? Remember, depositors depositors are lending money to banks. Then there's less of a risk of a bank run. Although in the internet age, even that may not be enough to, to guarantee you what's going on. By the way, as an interesting aside, <coughs> pardon me, the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank came out recently and said, hey, uh, we weren't as stupid as everyone thinks we, thinks we were because the... Uh, Federal Reserve Bank, uh, Powell came out and said, hey, this inflation is going to be transitory. So we doubled down on our federal deposits. ISVB had some hedges. They took those hedges off. Well, obviously, Powell was extremely wrong with the T word, but it's actually an interesting defense. And he, he's got uh, some validity on his side. Of course, when inflation did prove to be transitory, uh, Silicon Valley Bank did some phenomenally stupid things, or rather was phenomenally passive, which turned out to be very stupid. But part of that point is right. There was, uh, there was initially a downplaying of the inflation risk by the Federal Reserve. So anyway, what is narrow banking? Narrow banking, which the Fed doesn't like, actually. It's, it's turned down every uh, bank charter application for narrow banking. Narrow banking is quite simple. What you do is the depositors all make their deposits and banks, as we all know, pay little on deposits and charge more for their loans and their profit is the difference. Narrow, narrow banking, they don't make any loans whatsoever. It's not fractional reserve banking, it's full reserve banking. And all of the money that's deposited in the bank is invested with the federal government. And so if the Fed is paying five and a half percent, the fractional bank, because it has very uh, few expenses for operations, comparatively speaking, may pay three and a half percent and they'll live off the two percent. Now, why does the world not like that? Why does the federal government not like that? The reason is because of the other function that banks perform. 
and that is banks provide money to the economy, to individuals for consumer loans or for mortgage loans, to companies for CapEx, so for capital expenditures, that is for longer term investments, or for OpEx, just to keep operations going. But the, as a general basis, the loans have a much longer term than the deposits. The deposits are almost all demand deposits. That is, you can go in at any time and demand all your money back and the bank is obligated to do so. The loans, on the other hand, are not immediately callable. The bank makes loans to businesses and the businesses make long-term plans. Uh, makes loan, the bank makes loans to uh, individuals to buy mortgages and those mortgages will be up to 30 years in the United States, some outliers are even longer. Now, the banks don't have to keep those loans on their balance sheet. That is, they, they are the ones who service the loans and uh, to whom the loan amounts, the payments, the monthly payments are made, or they can sell them. They can say, okay, look, a, a million-dollar loan made at 6% interest is worth $105 million. Give me $104.5 million and you can keep the rest, but you have the time risk, the payment risk. And so often those loans are securitized and they're moved off the balance sheet of a bank. That is how fractional reserve banking works. And it's why uh, the uh, regulatory authorities want banks to not be narrow banks and why the, the FDIC has never approved a narrow banking bank charter. And so you, but, but you see there's a, there's a cognitive dissonance here. Uh, it's a confidence game. Now, I don't know if, how many of you know the word where the word con man comes from, but it's from confidence man because the man, uh, some an individual, not necessarily male, obviously, uh, earns the confidence of somebody and rips them off. It's a con game, a con man, a con artist. But banking is also a confidence game, not in such a pejorative way, or at least not to most people, but a bank, the, the, the fractional reserve banking concept can only work if depositors have confidence in the bank. If they don't, they'll pull their bank accounts, they'll pull their deposits. Now, it used to be that when everyone had to go physically to their bank and deposit the money, there were actually some physical constraints on withdrawing money. It was a bit of a pain. You had to go down. You had to stand in line, sometimes incredibly long lines. So bank runs had built-in breaks. And by the time all of this was going on, generally some more news came out and the bank runs would cool down and the Federal Reserve would loan a bank some money to get over the bank run. But in the age of internet banking and social media, you have a Silicon Valley bank situation where $41 billion, according to the CEO of SVB, was pulled out in one day. And he made the point there are very few banks that could survive that. And he's probably right. There are very few. And those are the big five in the United States. And I'm not sure how many others could actually withstand that. But that's part of, call it an inherent problem in fractional reserve banking. It is designed to borrow money for banks to borrow short-term money and lend long-term money. And that's a problem if too many people want their money back. And in the internet age, you have a real issue with bank runs, just old-fashioned bank runs, except now, instead of running to your bank, which is where, it's, which is where the word is from, uh, people run to the internet and start pulling their money out. 
Uh, it really can happen much, much faster, uh, even than it could happen 10 years ago. And Silicon Valley Bank is a, a walking testament to that. With Federal Reserve Bank, it took a longer period of time, but still, it was basically uh, a slower motion train crash, whereas SVB was a very, very rapid train crash. So I started looking into banks because it seems it seemed to me, I've lived a lot of time, spent a lot of time in other countries, it seems to me that the U.S. has a lot of banks. And everyone talked about, oh, banks are going to have to consolidate, they're going to have to be bought out by the big five. And five actually is a large number of really large banks. And everyone's saying, oh, it's horrible that these banks are too big, for, too big to fail. But one of the reasons they got big is apparently that they were managed a bit better, or at least managed a bit better pre-internet social media, perhaps. So maybe they have a bit of an unfair historical advantage, but I think you can hardly penalize them for that. So I looked up what countries have the largest number of banks per capita in the world. Well, not entirely surprising was that Luxembourg, which really is makes a business of funds and banks, and it's part of the EU, so it's, uh, it's subject to the same regulation as any other EU country is. Luxembourg has by far the largest number of banks per capita in the world. It's over 5,000 banks per million people. That's a lot of folks, a lot of banks, rather. The United States, interestingly, is number two. The United States has about 4,000 banks. Sorry, the total number of banks in Luxembourg was over 5,000. It wasn't a per capita number. The United States is about 4,000 banks and is also number two per capita, an enormous number of banks. So you've got to ask yourself, do we need a bank in every small town? Do we need a bank on virtually every street corner? I live in a, in a, in a part of San Diego. It's, it's not a suburb. It's not a separate city. It's got a separate name, though, called La Jolla. And there is literally a bank. I went walking around just prior to this. There is literally a bank on every block in La Jolla, sometimes more than one. Say, like, why do we need all of that? And why do we need all these different branches? And now it's kind of funny because Chase is, uh, uh, J.P. Morgan has taken over uh, has taken over FRB, and so you have Chase Bank and, and FRB banks right next to each other, and obviously one of those is going to be closed in the near term. But do we need that many banks in the Internet age? And certainly when you have the U.S. as a spread-out country, and at least for a long time the population density was quite low, you wanted to have banks on your street corner because you had to go to that bank physically, and the banks knew you, et cetera, et cetera. Well, now, even if you can go to your local bank, who does? Uh, there is, and, and this may be a, a bad thing or a sad thing, there is not that personal relationship with your banker anymore. I, the, the best relationship I have with a bank is a banker who runs, who's the best for, for all three of the funds I run and for my management company and for the yield farming business I do, same bank. He's in New York. I've seen him once at a party, I think, in New York. And other, But we talk all the time, have a great relationship. It's got nothing to do with a local bank. So the and, and running banks and running that many banks mean there's means there's a lot of overhead and a lot of inefficiency built into banks. The United States is interesting if you look at the at uh, uh, the fact that it's a unified economy, smaller than the economy in the EU per capita in terms of population rather, but much stronger, much more vibrant, much more fast growing. 
than the EU. And the reason is, is because it's a unified market. Supply chains are much more efficient here. Supply chains are just crazily inefficient in Europe. Yet the banking system in Europe is much more efficient because each country is dominated by a smaller number of large banks. And they also have regional and, lo regional and local banks, but far, far fewer in the United States. So you have to ask yourself if the U.S. system of greater efficiency should not be extended to banking. And the number of banks radically reduced, cut in half. And uh, right now, every bank is being, the regional banks are fairly large, is being bailed out. But you have to wonder, why do we need all of these local banks? And frankly, I think the U.S. would be stronger, more efficient, the banking system more robust if we had, say, 2,000 banks or even 1,000 banks, um, that's more than enough. It would still put the U.S. in the top 10 in the world uh, and not the 4,000 banks um, that we have currently. So that's the third point, a little bit of a thought piece on banks. And I really, really do not think that we need to preserve uh, all of the banks and maybe even uh, fractional banking because you could have narrow banking on the one hand and have investment funds or other financial institutions who are not banks. And I'm not going to say non-bank banks because non-banks accept non-bank banks accept deposits. These really are lending institutions of some sort and really change part of the theoretical underpinnings of the banking system in the United States or have both those systems, narrow banking with uh, financial institutions who lend and less fractional reserve banking or maybe no fractional reserve banking, and really change uh, the system or at least have a hybrid and allow narrow banking and financial institutions. Because there are a lot of lenders now that are starting to jump into the vacuum created by banks who are now hesit hesitant to lend because they're concerned about where they're going to be able to put, uh, where they're being able to put their assets and what their return will be. The third and last point is just a fascinating analysis done by Société Générale, uh, speaking of large banks, it's the largest French bank, and there are about four or five, I think, large uh, banks in France as well. But Société Générale did analysis. It backed out the gains in the S&P, and there's a bit of a subjective element to this, but it's mostly objective. The gains in the S&P that were generated by AI uh, in, certain, in certain companies, so NVIDIA and, and Google, which went down and up because of AI or Alphabet, more precisely. And it came to a remarkable conclusion, which is that the S&P would actually be down 2% in 2023, but for the effects of AI on certain stocks. Now, I'm not sure I would agree with any analysis like this because of the subjective elements, but the core truth is that markets have moved up in the U.S., the S&P in particular, significantly because of the influence of AI in certain sectors. And it wouldn't surprise me if indeed the S&P were unchanged or even down without the influence of AI. Uh, so it tells you on the one hand how important it is and how how much uh, uh, companies are moving to it and how risky the move might be because if there's a problem discovered in AI or there's there's a regulatory, would probably be the most likely threat, regulatory action taken given that 
the CEO of OpenAI was in, testified before Congress yesterday and specifically called for regulation. Um, it reminds me of regu regulation in the crypto space, but this, I think, will, will take a very different route. But nevertheless, when, when the CEO of the lead company in terms of AI, because they obviously released chat GPT-3, 3, 5, 4, et cetera, um, that's pretty dramatic when the industry itself is calling for Congress to regulate. Happens, but not all that often. Um, so uh, just a, an interesting data point. But for AI, stock markets would be conceivably down and almost certainly unchanged this year. Uh, that's quite a sobering thought, both for general investors and for uh, AI and its, its impact already on the uh, wider market. So with that, Covers uh, out on a limb for today. We'll speak to you with episode 37 next week. I wish you a, a successful seven days.